this process really makes you aware of how unnatural it is to you. Uh, and you become deeply estranged as a writer or when you're, when you're doing this sort of thing. And any ice that is kind of clogging up your creative space, it's being yermacked to, to Buckley's. There's nothing left of it by the end. I appreciate you for using all this ice analogy. I, I'm Thank really going for, for acknowledging it. my struggle. I'm going to do a terrible uh, segue now. It's like one of those deep cleansers. They, they say you should do it at the chemist. You know, you're, you're a new person by the time you get through this process. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pleasure of the Text podcast, a shared imagined space where readers and writers make meaning together. We're your hosts, Shannon Gareth. Good morning, Shannon. Good morning, everyone. Wow, it's it feels like it's been ages since we recorded a podcast. It does feel like it's been ages, maybe because it has been ages, and I feel a little bit awkward, so apologies, audience, if you pick up on that. We're a little bit out of practice, but I'm rearing to go because I'm really excited for today. Yeah, so am I. And yes, obviously, uh, if we do seem a bit stiff, uh, that will clear itself up pretty soon. And there we go. Uh, So we have some housekeeping uh, that we have to get through, I believe. Yes, uh, housekeeping. So it does feel like a while because it has been a while. And that's because Gareth and I have some exciting projects that we've been working on. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, or it's probably about a month now, depending on when you're listening to the podcast, we are starting a publishing house and there's a bit of groundwork that we've got to get through on that, but we're really excited for that and a lot of attention is being diverted towards that area and also our own personal writings. And so we are going to be trialing, releasing the podcast fortnightly now instead of weekly and just to see how that uh, goes with our workloads. This is the concept of under-promising and over-delivering, isn't it? Because we've been over-promising and under-delivering, and that's been that's been great. <laughs> but now we're going to try great the other us. way to see which one we like better. So, yeah, under-promising. <laughs> we would which, love feedback on that as well. Yeah, do you find us under-promising? I feel like that's uh, something your your school teacher would tell you when you're like 10. You're a very under-promising student. Um, but we're going to over-deliver. We're going to over-deliver this week because it's it's such a big and exciting topic, isn't it? But I've, I've diverted us off the track of the housekeeping. So let's just sweep back that way. Housekeeping, the final housekeeping. Yeah. Again, a month ago when we did that podcast when we were talking about censorship and sensitivity readers, I just flippantly threw it out there that, you know, like and subscribe. We really enjoy what we do here, uh, building an audience on that front. And I put a challenge out there for the audience to like and subscribe and share our podcast to their friends and families, whoever will listen to them because we love what we do here. And Jay took that upon himself. Thank you so much, Jay. And so we have awarded you while we're gifting you. I mentioned that it was a book that I just picked up randomly at a bookstore, but um, because we are over-delivering now, given the uh, books that you've mentioned that you've been reading, we've picked a very specific one for you. So we're going to be getting in contact with you, Jay, to get your address and we'll be sending you a personally picked book 
from us very shortly. So congratulations, Shane. Thank you so much for all your support. Congratulations. Uh, we won't be signing it because that feels redundant. <laughs> but, but yes, it's very, it's very exciting, isn't it? It is very exciting. And I'm also very excited for today because uh, this has been developing for a while and you've been tantalizing me with the details. You said it was going to be hard. It was going to be fun. Um, but we're going to be talking about defamiliarization in a very different way. And yeah, did you want to take the ball with that one, Gareth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, I've been over-promising. Um, but I tried really hard not to under-deliver under this time. Um, <clears throat> so defamiliarization is something that we're going to talk about ad nauseum on, on this podcast. And we're going to bring it back in its difference, which in itself is an act of defamiliarization. So we're going to look at defamiliarization from through a whole bunch of lenses. Uh, and the lens we're looking at it through today is translation. Shannon and I both really enjoy books in translation. And because uh, you, you do have a bit of another language, don't you, Shannon? You speak. Yes, I wouldn't say that I'm fluent in German, but I understand it enough to read basic um, texts and I can also talk basically. The example I give is I couldn't tell you why Angela Merkel was incredibly sad because she lost or got voted out of chancellorship, but I could say Angela Merkel was sad. She was crying or something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. I was taught French and German, but I didn't learn French and German, so I can like throw out a couple of sentences here and there, but I don't know what they mean. I just remember them from the sounds. So not much use. But um, but we do enjoy books in translation, particularly I think at the moment, in any case, um, Japanese texts in translation. And I think something's happening in Japan. Like I don't know what's going on over there. I haven't been over there. But they seem to be up to something, and they seem to think of their writing in a very considered way. Um, and and so, what I wanted to start off doing, and we will talk about defamiliarization more generally soon. But I just want to sort of uh, frame what we're going to do today. Uh, as translators, we're going to be translating something without another language. So, how about that? I want to read you this uh, a little ec uh, extract from a chapter in a book called Yoko Tawada, Voices from Everywhere. That's the book. Really hard book to get, very expensive. Uh, so, you know, my birthday's coming up, listeners, and if you if you want to, you know, band together and <laughs> buy me this book, you know, I wouldn't say no. But the, the, <laughs> the particular, that's shameless, wasn't it? The particular um, chapter is by a writer called Kijiro Suga, and it's called Translation, Exophony, Omniphony. And he's going to be talking about Yoko Tawada, obviously. It's a whole book about her. Um, and she's an exophonic writer in that she writes in, uh, at times, she writes in a language which is not her mother tongue. And there are, there are other Japanese writers that do this, I believe. Weren't you telling me the other day, Shannon? Mm. I, I've forgotten. Um, somebody. Yeah. Uh, so I recently downloaded an audio book by Murakami uh, titled Novelist as a Vocation. And I didn't realize this, but 
he was saying the reason how and why he developed his particular style of writing is he found it very difficult to get into the mood of writing in Japanese. He knew very basic English, so he would write the first draft in English, um, very simple language, and then go back and translate it back into the Japanese. And, yeah, that's amazing. I mean, if you're someone who whinges about doing multiple drafts, try doing that. Try, yeah, try that on for size. Yeah, my God. It sort of has a certain, it has hints of Hemingway. And also it should be said, we're talking about Haruki Murakami, not, uh, is it Ryu? Yes, Haruki Murakami. So not the other one, um, in the same way that there's Shannon and the other one, and that's me. So we're talking about Haruki. And isn't it interesting that he has almost become a homonym, a homonym in the people just say Murakami now, uh, like, like, he, they rarely bother with his whole name. I, I don't know what the other one thinks of this because he's written some great stuff, but it's just the way it goes. <laughs> but again, it's a very considered way to write, writing in another language to simplify uh, your own writing style. So Sugar, he writes, uh, quote, a language is not fully alive when translated into another. Half dead, it gives a new life to the host language. Its original meaning becomes distorted and somewhat obscure. But at the same time, the translated form is charged with an aura of discovery and excitement in a new environment. Transformation of a language through the process of translation offers the framework for Yoko Tawada's writings. In her works, seemingly two different operations, translation and creation, merge into a continuous effort of a writer. Considering that Tawada writes constantly in two languages, Japanese and German, this comes as no surprise. Still, there must be some irreducible differences or unresolvable conflicts between the two processes. I will take up Tawada's fascinating novel Moji Ishoku, that translates to transplanting letters, to discuss how translation intervenes in the imaginary of a writer to eventually have repercussions on the language in which she writes. So he goes on to say, translational poetics is a phrase I have been using for years without really giving thought to its full potential. We all do that. What does translation have to do with literary creation? In Transplanting Letters, her novelist friend tells her to write her own novel instead of just translating. According to the novelist friend, a translator is never counted as an artist. To this, the reaction in the translator's mind is that she doesn't want to write a novel or anything, that she wants to translate and she doesn't translate because she couldn't be a novelist. Then comes the following dialogue with the post office clerk of the island, who asks her, a series of questions. Is there a book that's never translated into another language? Well, most of the books in this world are. Is there a book of which only the translation is left? I mean, a book from the old days. Yes, yet there are books of which only translations survive and the originals are lost. If only the translations are left, how do you know that these themselves are not the originals? Oh, that's easy to tell. Translation is... Like itself a language, you can tell because you feel as if some pebbles were falling down on you. You'd better not go to the sea. That's a rather mysterious thing to say. 
So that's a little quote from uh, Tawada's Tawada's story. Uh, And Sugar goes on to say, I feel here that the narrator slash translator is quite rightly pointing out the secret of her craft. Translation leaves you with such a physical, material sensation. In the process of translation, something abruptly comes out. Some pebbles from an unknown sky will threateningly fall on you. These are the moments when language's unexpected apparition surprises you and disturbs the order of your established repertoire of available words and phrases. It is the moment of transformation of the language in which the work is being written. This may be taking place anywhere that a poet is at work, but in translation, its moment of transformation becomes crudely locatable. To me, the beauty of this novella, Transplanting Letters, resides in this disclosure of truth, and seldom have I encountered a literary work that acutely sheds light on this aspect of translation's mechanism. So when I when I first read that, this was something that um, that I had felt intuitively or naively for like a, quite a long time. And I, I've said to people without really understanding why I'm saying it, uh, that I think translation is an art form as opposed to a sort of a technical pursuit. And Tawada or through sugar, uh, or, or sugar through Tawada rather, um, identifies this moment. It's, it's this, it's this sudden, uh, when you have to engage with the language as something that could have had alternatives, that, that is very much what occurs when you write. You write everything that you're, you, you write the thing that, it, that is, excludes everything else that you don't write. Uh, and, and, and then that choosing, that is the creative act. You're defamiliarizing a thing in a sense. A concept can have an infinite number of applications and identifications and when you write it you're picking one and you're excluding the rest and this is a profound act of defamiliarization in and of itself and and obviously translators do the exact same thing now they're not the originators of the text but you know if we're being honest with ourselves no one ever is um harold bloom would say you know all texts are a translation of somebody else's texts uh, and that you're constantly a sort of an intertext. Um, when you write your work, there is always the work that is to come pressing in against you. So you have, you have your <clears throat> sources of inspiration and the people you will be an inspiration to and you're navigating that space. I think uh, I bought a book, Shannon, just yesterday. I was, I was in Newcastle. Oh, you don't at, say. Yeah, I know. Shocking, right? I was in Newcastle and there it was on the shelf, Margaret Atwood's Writers on Writing. Uh, and she calls oh, that great book. Negotiating with the Dead. And she's talking mm. about that concept. Um, so, so yeah, uh, translation is a, a profound act of defamiliarization. I think it's every bit as creative as writing or any other art form. I think it's an art form. Yeah, and I agree. And I think Haruki Murakami is also a translator too. He translates works of English um, into the Japanese and he used to do it with Hemingway and a lot of great novels as well. And there's an artistic 
choice to make in every word or sentence to get the original meaning. Yeah, and to to translate Hemingway, I didn't know he translated Hemingway because I was just saying before I found sort of his approach somewhat Hemingway-esque. Who knows, maybe he was inspired by Hemingway, but Hemingway had a very particular uh, philosophy of writing, one which, you know, somewhat irritatingly, he never actually defined clearly. Um, and for some reason, people are not that interested in finding out what he was trying to do, which I think is very odd. Um, but he was definitely trying to do something very specific. So if you're translating him, there's, there is this pressure, this, this ghost in the room of what he was actually trying to do with his work, because obviously you could miss that profoundly in a translation. So, so what Sugar is identifying uh, through Tawada is is this exciting moment where creation happens, this, this feeling of being rained down upon by pebbles, uh, which, you know, doesn't sound that exciting actually, but you'd notice, why right? You'd notice it was happening. So I think that was the point. Um, and I guess now the question is, you know, we've talked about defamiliarize, uh, defamiliarization before, and I've actually read a, a passage uh, from Victor... Shklovsky, uh, try saying that 10 times. But what we're going to do today is, Shannon, you're going to read the same passage, but it's a different translation to the one I read previously. So this is defamiliarized. If you have better recall than I do and you remember me reading the passage, uh, you'll notice there are some profound differences in this translation. It's the most recent one from 2017, and this was done by Alexandra Bellina. Quote, Considering the laws of perception, we see that routine actions become automatic. All our skills retreat into the unconscious automatic domain. You will agree with this if you remember the feeling you had when holding a quill in your hand for the first time or speaking a foreign language for the first time and compare it to the feeling you have when doing it for the 10,000th time. It is the automization process which explains the laws of our prosaic speech, its understructured phrases and its half-pronounced words. This process is ideally expressed in algebra, which replaces things with symbols. In practical speech, words are not spoken fully. Only their initial sounds are registered by the mind. Pogadin gives the example of a boy imagining the phrase, and please help me with this, Gareth, um, oh my, okay, so Les Montagnes de la Suisse sont belles, I think. That was my best effort, folks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Learn French, everyone. Mm. Um, so, continuing. As a series of letters, L M D L S S B. This property of thinking has suggested not only the path of algebra but even the particular choice of symbols, letters and especially initial letters. This algebraic way of thinking takes in things by counting and spatializing them. We do not see them, but recognize them by their initial features. A thing passes us as if packaged. We know of its existence by the space it takes up, but we only see its surface. Perceived in this way, the thing dries up first an experience, and then its very making suffers. Because of this perception, prosaic speech is not fully heard. 
C.F. Jakob Binks, Binksky's article. Yeah, check that one out, CF? folks. Is that- yeah, CF yeah. is uh, basically it's sending you in that direction. Can't remember what oh, it's position. Okay. I mean, this is a shocker, isn't it? Because we've literally got some initials here, and I, I don't know. I don't know what it stands for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably French or Latin. Yeah, we'll just go with that. And therefore, not fully spoken. This is the reason for slips of the tongue. Algebraizing, automatizing a thing, we save the greatest amount of perceptual effort. Things are either given as a single feature, for instance, a number, or else they follow a formula of sorts without ever reaching consciousness. I was dusting in the room, having come full circle. I approached the sofa and could not remember if I had dusted it off or not. I couldn't because these movements are routine and not conscious, and I felt I never could remember it. So if I'd cleaned the sofa but forgotten it, that is if this was really unconscious. It is as if this never happened. If somebody had watched consciously, reconstruction would have been possible. But if nobody watched, if nobody watched consciously, if the whole life of many people is lived unconsciously, it is as if this life had never been. Right. You may, at this point, if you're listening to this, you may be sort of grasping at it um, with all this algebraizing and so forth. But... (laughs) But really what we're, what we're talking about is how we don't see things. Um, uh, they, they, when you're sort of anxious, they'll give you exercises. You know, what are, what are, uh, what is this, five, four, three, two, one, five things you can see, four things you can feel. And it's surprisingly difficult uh, if you don't practice it uh, to find five things that you can see. Um, you sort of look around the room and, and all the things blend together. Like, what are you actually pulling out? Um, and this is indeed the process of description in writing. You don't describe everything. That would be, that would be insane. You, uh, you pick a few things out, don't you? You pick, you pick some stuff out. And, but in our general life, we don't, that's what he's talking about. In our general life, we don't do that. It's all just initials. It's all surface. The thing itself is lost in just a sea of letters. And then we get to what is his very famous part of this quote. But I, but I think that lead-up is really interesting, if difficult. This is how life becomes nothing and disappears. Automatization eats things, clothes, furniture, your wife, and the fear of war. If the whole complex life of many people is lived unconsciously, it is as if this life had never been. And so what we call art exists in order to give back the sensation of life, in order to make us feel things, in order to make the stone stony. The goal of art is to create the sensation of seeing and not merely recognizing things. The device of art is the ostronini of things and the complication of the form, which increases the duration and complexity of perception as the process of perception is its own end in art and must be prolonged. Art is the means to live through the making of a thing. What has been made does not matter in art. I mean, for me, that passage is a really good description of what art is and why art is important and why I have in various ways continually devoted myself to pursuing art. 
um, without really knowing why, but feeling like it was a tremendously important thing to be doing. Uh, you know, we recognize things, we don't see them. And, and it's interesting too. So Ostranini could be, uh, so we have defamiliarization. That was a, that was a, a translation of that. A, a more correct translation would be estrangement, the estrangement of things to make, you know, so you see an orange, you make it strange. And there's so many ways you can do that. One of the interesting little historical notes about all this, you know, how like we were talking about lost letters, like Barts doesn't get his S, things like that. When um, when Shklovsky was writing this, he he basically did a typo and he left out the N. And to this day, people say estrangement uh, as, as his theory, the, the theory of estrangement. And he's talked about this. He's talked about the fact that that poor little N has been chasing the concept ever since. Um, and it's it's an interesting thing because if anyone ever thought about what he was talking about, the, the scholars that talk about estrangement, they, they would be troubled by the, that missing N <laughs> because it's, it's kind of important. So it's actually N-strangement, folks. And I, I feel like with Barts, you know, we've got to get that S on there and make people say the S because God knows it's an act of castration. Um, and we need to it's get that classic N. French thing to do: dropping n, no, dropping yeah, letters. It's just—it's terrible. Nobody should be dropping letters. Oh, wait a minute, we're going to be. Um, but but estrangement is is the term. And, and so, yeah, basically, if you think yeah. about it, if you think about art, anything that is an art form will take something that you understand or feel familiar with and defamiliarize it. Uh, and you know, people say stand-up comedy is an art form. I agree. The the way stand-up comedy works is it takes familiar things and makes them strange in certain ways and surprises you, and that's what's funny. And this is true of all visual art. So when people you know panic about whether modern art is actually art, you know, don't worry about it. It is. Uh, the, the question of whether it's good art is up to you, but but it is art. And so, so everyone can be calm about that now and, and have some certainty around it. Um, so I guess what we're saying today is this feeling of estrangement is the joy of reading in our context. It's the joy of reading. It's also the joy of writing and it's the joy of translation. And these things are all connected because of course, when we read, we translate, uh, we, we insert ourselves into the text and we get a text that is our text, and it has been translated, whether we like it or not. Um, and that's its joy. And the more we can be absorbed into a text, and the more we can absorb the text into ourselves, the more joy we seem to get out of it. However, writers uh, kickstart you, whichever ones give you the biggest kicks, that's because they're they're merging with you. Their texts, the texts are merging with you in in the most complete way. So that's the joy of defamiliarization, and this is why we're saying that translation is a form of defamiliarization, therefore a form of art. So that's great, and I'm sure you're glad you took the time to find out about that, but what are we going to do about it? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what we're going to do. Yes, because today is a creative writing day. I know, right? We're just you, You've got to spread out with creative writing, though. This is the horror of it. Um. <laughs> So much of it exists outside the sphere of creative writing, you know, in bunny years. Um, so yeah. 
I think you read that really beautifully, Shannon. So, so now I'm going to fire you some uh, Georges Perec to read. Avoid um, is the piece. It's a novel. It's a very good novel. I recommend it. And this is not the introduction to the novel because he read an introduction. This is chapter one. Um, and I say to you, read as much of it as you wish to. And when you get sick of reading it, just stop. So, yeah, whatever you feel you want to read. And I'm putting a challenge out there to the audience of those who have not heard of George's Perec. I'm going to read this. And if you notice anything strange, you can put it on the comments in YouTube. Uh, and then obviously we will tell you what's happening in this text. Chapter one, which at first calls to mind a probably familiar story of a drunk man waking up with his brain in a whirl. Incurably insomniac, Anton Val turns on a light. According to his watch, it's only 12.20. With a loud and languorous sigh, Val sits up, stuffs the pillow at his back, draws his quilt up around his chin, picks up his whodunit and idly scans a paragraph or two. But judging its plot impossibly difficult to follow in his condition, its vocabulary too whimsically multisyllabic for comfort, throws it away in disgust. Padding into his bathroom, Val dabs at his brow and throat with a damp cloth. It's a soft, warm night and his blood is racing through his body. An indistinct murmur wafts up to his third floor flat. Far off, a church clock starts chiming, a chiming as mournful as a last post, as an air raid alarm, as an SOS signal from a sinking ship. And in his own vicinity, a faint lapping sound informs him that a small craft is at that instant navigating a narrow canal. Crawling across his windowsill is a tiny animal, indigo and saffron in colour, not a cockroach, not a blowfly, but a kind of wasp, laboriously dragging a sugar crumb along with it. Hoping to crush it with a casual blow, Val lifts up his right hand, but it abruptly flaps its wings, flying off without giving its assailant an opportunity to do any harm. Hand tapping a military march on his thighs, Val now walks into his pantry, finds a carton of cold milk, pours it out into a bowl and drinks it down to its last drop. Mmm, how scrumptious milk is at midnight. Now for a cosy armchair, a Figaro to look at and a good Havana cigar, notwithstanding that its rich and smoky flavour is bound to sit oddly in his mouth with that milk. I don't know. I just, I just love it. I, I'll read a paragraph to you because it's just, it's music, isn't it? Okay. And it goes, and music too, radio music, but not this idiotic cha-cha-cha, the casual fiddling of knobs. Ah, a Boston, and now a tango, and a foxtrot, and now a jazzy, harmonically spiky, cotillion a la Stravinsky. Uh, Dutron, singing a ballad by Lanzmann. Barbara, a madrigal by Aragon, Stitch Randall, an aria from Aida. Mm. So much fun. Wow, something was missing there. Something had been estranged. Now, we both know what it is. I'm going to give you a few moments to consider it. Maybe you'll be shouting this at the TV mm. at home or at your phone. Imagine that, people all just shouting at their phones. <laughs> ah! 
on that um, drive through the traffic. Ah, I know what it is. I know what it is. My God. So what is it, Shannon? I'll let you do the big reveal. Drum roll for you. Big drum roll. It is the E. The E the is missing. E. Where is the E gone? Not a single E in any of that. Isn't that extraordinary? And, of course, this mm. is a its a short novel. It's not a massive novel, I don't think. I've read it. How long is it? Maybe 200, 300 pages? Yeah, it's not It's not. Dickensian. Given that E is the most prolific letter in the English language, writing a novel of 200 words without the letter E seems impossible to me. It's an extraordinary achievement. And, of course, he wrote this in French. So, and that, and believe it or not, folks, E is more common in French than it is in English. It's it's the most common um, vowel in the French language by a, by a long shot. Oh, you're right. Because he wrote this in French and then someone did it again and translated it from the French to the English without the letter E again. Whoa, yeah, I know, blowing. right? So there's an act of translation, but also what we have here is the translation of a story into a lipogram. A lipogram is a piece of writing in which something has been omitted, typically a vowel, um, or perhaps several letters. But so, but obviously, Perec said, "Let's do, let's go for this. Let's do the hardest one." So no e. And what makes this such a beautiful piece of writing is that the pe- the people in the story are plagued by a sense of loss, and the sense of loss is the letter e. They, they sense that something is missing. Uh, there's a void, and that's what it's called, a void. Um, I really recommend people read this. I mean, it it has a slightly uh, strange tone, obviously, but it is reasonably naturalistic, I think. It's not yeah. a, a I remember padding into his the bathroom. the first time I read it, it took me a very long time to pick up that something was missing. I just thought it was just a strange piece of writing. Yeah. Yeah. I I was surprised. I knew about it long before I read it. Um, And I did imagine it, that it would be a very strange piece of writing and that it wouldn't um, be enjoyable to read, but it is actually incredibly enjoyable to read. Um, And it's very funny. And uh, he has the line, he's reading the whodunit, and he finds its vocabulary too whimsically multisyllabic for comfort. Uh, that's, yeah, it's just delightful. So, yes, Georges Perec Avoid, definitely worth reading. So this is an, an act of translation in translation. Um, and there's something to be learned from this. And what we're going to do is a writing exercise, and we are going to attempt a lipogram. Um but to make it a bit more accessible for people, what I thought we'd do is we would translate a an extant work. And that work is a story by Saki, the, the great English short story writer. And it's one that I have used when I've taught creative writing. I've used this a zillion times in all these different contexts because it's just so useful. And it's called The Reticence of Lady Anne. Um, it's from about 1910. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, so it's only a thousand words long and we are going to 
either direct you to an online copy. It's long out of copyright, so it's, it's not an issue. Or we'll, we'll, we'll post a copy on, on our website or in the show notes or somewhere. Because I think our, what we want to do is challenge everyone listening today to attempt to lipogrammatically translate the reticence of Lady Anne into the same story, but without the letter E anywhere. So the reticence of Lady Anne, you will notice that we have the reticence and Anne all containing E's. It's a disaster. I'm going to read you what we're going to... So so Shannon and I are going to do the first half, more or less. Um, and then and then we'll see how we go. So I'll, I'll read you the original first. Okay. The reticence of Lady Anne. Egbert came into the large, dimly lit drawing room with the air of a man who is not certain whether he's entering a dovecote or a bomb factory and is prepared for either eventuality. The little domestic quarrel over the luncheon table had not been fought to a definite finish, and the question was how far Lady Anne was in a mood to renew or forego hostilities. Her pose in the armchair by the tea table was rather elaborately rigid. In the gloom of a December afternoon, Egbert's pince-nez did not materially help him to discern the expression of her face. By way of breaking whatever ice might be floating on the surface, he made a remark about a dim religious light. He or Lady Anne were accustomed to make that remark between 4.30 and 6 on winter and late autumn evenings. It was a part of their married life. There was no recognised rejoinder to it, and Lady Anne made none. Don Tarquino lay a stretch on the Persian rug, basking in the firelight with superb indifference to the possible ill humour of Lady Anne. His pedigree was as flawlessly Persian as the rug, and his ruff was coming into the glory of its second winter. The page boy, who had Renaissance tendencies, had christened him Don Tarquino. Left to themselves, Egbert and Lady Anne would unfailingly have called him Fluff, but they were not obstinate. Egbert poured himself out some tea. As the silence gave no sign of breaking on Lady Anne's initiative, he braced himself for another Yermak effort. My remark at lunch had a purely academic application, he announced. You seem to put an unnecessarily personal significance into it. Lady Anne maintained her defensive barrier of silence. So we're going to work with that today. Um... Now you may you may when I was reading that have have felt the pressure of ease appearing. Uh, I particularly noticed it when I read and is prepared for either eventuality. The E's were just exploding off the page in a rather alarming way. Um, so this is our challenge, you and I, Shannon. We're going to we're going to give ourselves some time. Now normally when we do exercises, we say five to ten minutes, don't we? Uh, but we're not going to say that today. Yes. Because this is not going to be a five to ten minute undertaking. I'm going to say maybe one to two hours. And then we will come back and we will we'll read what we've got. And if you want to try this at home, and I really recommend it, really recommend it. You'll start off thinking it's great fun, then you'll hate it. And then you'll be like, I hate this. Why did I even think this was going to be fun? And then you'll start thinking, actually, I could just change that word though, couldn't I? I'll just do that and then I'll throw it away. Then you start doing a bit more. Before you know it, you're you're pulled in, you can't stop. 
I found myself unable to... Sucked into a void. Into a void of wanting to get rid of ease, and it's really great fun. Um, But it also has some Mm. specific benefits. So should we... uh, Get started, everyone, and we will see you in one to two hours. All right. Have fun, guys. And we're back and I think what you said was a self-fulfilling prophecy, Gareth. At first I was like, yeah, this is going to be easy. And then it got a little bit harder and it got very challenging. It's like, why am I doing this? And then it was really challenging but incredibly beneficial for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I could tell at certain points you were questioning why you were even podcasting with me. But, you know, we, we got there, <laughs> didn't we? we? We got through it. It, it, was, uh, it was difficult. But it was fun. And the first thing Even the we fixed. Title. Yeah, I was going to say, the first thing we fixed was the title. <laughs> and, and the reticence of Lady Anne in our version is Lady Anne's taciturnity. Lady Anne's taciturnity, which I thought was very clever because it suggests the sound of eternity, which is uh, turns out to be quite important. So we made a few initial uh, things, didn't we? We, we kind of went, okay, so Egbert's not going to work as a name. And we went for Osgood, which felt uh, era appropriate. Anne was easy. We just chopped the E off. Uh, just one of those acts of castration. Off with the E. Uh, Don Tarquino, like all cats, was untouchable. Um, but there were some other issues. And we, uh, we even, with our little... Um, with our little footnote, we even fixed all that up for you. So it's not from the complete penguin sake. It's now from the total puffin sake, uh, which doesn't exist. So don't go looking for it. All right. So <laughs> um, what, I'll, what I'll probably do is, so we, well, the way Shannon and I organized this was we, I wrote the first, I rewrote the first paragraph with, with her help. And then she wrote the second paragraph and I rewrote the third paragraph and she did the sort of the fourth and fifth paragraphs, which were quite short. Uh, Oh, sorry, beg your pardon. Fourth, fifth and sixth paragraphs. And just to give it a good ending, um, I also jumped in and did just that first line of the the last bit. So um, now the reason why I am indicating who wrote what is we are going to talk about our process uh, after I've read it uh, and just kind of explain how we made the decisions we made. And that's going to be very important. So, okay, let's see if I can do this justice. Lady Anne's Taciturnity. Osgood stood in his spacious, dimly lit drawing room, with an air of a man who knows not if his surroundings are a bird box or a bomb factory, and was girding his loins for both. His small marital spat with Lady Anne during lunch had not had a satisfactory conclusion, and who could know a woman's mood to carry on or forego prior conflicts? Lady Anne's position in an armchair by a window had, to Osgood's mind, an unmistakably conscious rigidity, and Twilight's wintry gloom did not substantially assist him with divining his stars in this instant. By way of warming what was a cool discussion, similar to icy floats upon arctic shallows, his quip about a dim holy light slips by. 
Both would, in turn, brand this quip with fading sunlight from 4.30 and 6 during autumn and following nights. Typical and part of his marital affairs. A hush follows, though. Atypical for Lady Anne waits for all opportunity to fill such voids with contradiction. Don Tarquinio lay asprawl his Iranian rug, basking in a coal-lit glow, singularly oblivious to any possibility of Lady Anne's ill humour. His patrimony was as scrupulously Iranian as, as his rug, and his wintry ruff had all but won its sophomoric glory. Garçon, who had romantic inclinations, had thought naming such a cat Don Tarquinio most apt. But for this boy's urging, Osgood and Lady Anne would no doubt fall to calling him Fluff, but it was not a point for obstinacy. Osgood pours boiling liquid, rich with tannins from India, into his cup. With no obvious signs on Lady Anne's for a forthcoming acquittal, Osgood concocts a vision of boarding Russia's first custom-built Polish ship, cracking through glacial frizzles for amity. My dictum at lunch had a wholly philosophical application. You do put a gratuitously and idiosyncratic worth into it. Lady Anne, abaft a lofty boom of almost antagonistic passivity, said nothing. Well, let's break this down. I'll I'll tell you what I I remember about the first paragraph. Uh, So the first issue was that getting Osgood into the room was quite difficult. Uh, So many words uh, that uh, imply entry include ease. So my immediate choice was just to place him in the room. He has already stepped inside. After that... uh, And I think the other thing... Yeah, please. ...that we had to address quite immediately was uh, the original text was in past tense and all past tenses in English and with ED. So we had to bring it into the present tense. Yes. Yes, we did. And to be honest with you, I never thought about that. It just kind of happened because it was the only way to start moving things across. So I think you were the one who actually became aware that this was occurring. Uh, Whereas I, I wasn't aware of it at all. The, the next part that was particularly difficult for me was uh, how to deal with this question of how far she was in a mood to carry on or forego hostilities. And so I had to, I had to delve into my, my sort of uh, knowledge of sexist attitudes, uh, which obviously don't come naturally to me at all. And, pushed in the concept of a woman's mood. Uh, that, that kind of got me through that bit. Now, Shannon actually noted that I, I missed uh, a few things with her. I, I had a few hers and she's slipping in, which I had to get rid of, which was not much fun. And then the, the, the next issue was the table. There is simply no word in English that I could identify uh, that would replace table and that wouldn't contain an E. And also his pince-nez. Uh, it's very difficult to talk about spectacles, glasses, or anything of that nature without ease. So at this point, a true act of translation occurred for me. I had to think about 
what Saki was intending. And so what I did was I included a window. The window became uh, what had been the table. And I started thinking about, uh, because he talks about, you know, the winter, the December afternoon, the winter and so forth. And so I then started to think about how that could be the thing. The light could be the thing that didn't help him assess her mood rather than his glasses. And, uh, and yeah, so that was, that was what I did in that first rather large paragraph. Um, and yeah, there were some, there were some specific acts of translation that were estrangements of objects. And there was also the need to really understand what a man from 1910 might think in terms of marital behaviors and domestic quarrels and how a man might assess his wife at that time, 113 years ago. Uh, the next section you wrote, or, or translated rather, from um, from the breaking of the ice. So tell tell us about that. How how did that all work? This one was challenging, and it required me to go to a latter paragraph because he brings this concept up again of breaking ice with the word yermak. Mm. And I had no idea what a yermak was. So I had to go and look it up. So a Yermak is the first Russian ship and it's called an icebreaker. The ship is called an icebreaker. That's what it's known as. And I was like, okay, maybe I can use the Russian word icebreaker to get this meaning because you kind of uh, allowed yourself that artistic ability with Gasson. But icebreaker in Russian is Lamak, which has an E. <sighs> So then I was stuck with, okay, <laughs> we're going to go back to the Mac later on and I still need to keep this analogy or vision of breaking the ice in a conversation and keep it as best I could. Instead of breaking, I used the word warming. What was, you know, he's talking about an icy conversation, a cool conversation, and then he's talking about ice floating on the surface. Can't use the word ice. And so, you know, I decided to say icy, icy floats upon Arctic shallows because this will then lead back into the Yermak um, aspect of that later on. Uh, you can't, well, remark and mage. So quip to me seems to be that old English word of making a little bit of a snarky comment. So that was an easy choice to make there. Religious to holy wasn't too difficult then the next stumbling block for me was because we've talked about that gloom of the sky during winter and late autumn. Autumn's fine, but winter is a noun for a season. You can't use the word season or changing seasons. <laughs> so I found that <laughs> you can't, there's no, there's no other word for winter other than winter. So I just had to talk about autumn and the following months after autumn and hope that the audience got what I was trying to get to. And then my favourite part, actually, developing that space of what a man during this time is thinking, you know, having a not a negative opinion of his wife, 
but you know, of course she's got to nag at me based on whatever I say. And so having that expectation of Lady Anne waits for all opportunity to fill such voids with contradiction. I, I really like that yeah, I really um, like that artistic too. license there because I think it covers his character quite well. I think so too. I think it's really effective. And, and yeah, you really do. You have a lot of ice and liquid in your sections, which was not a, uh, a conscious decision on anyone's part. It just fell out that way. But uh, what a nightmare. <laughs> I likewise really, really hit the wall. The first paragraph was hard. The third paragraph was just something out of my nightmares. So, you know, it got off to a good start. I went with a sprawl rather than a stretch. But Persian rugs, and I thought, oh, no, uh, you can't. Like, Persian rugs are such a thing. And I went with Iranian rug, and I have to say I'm a bit ashamed. I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't find another way. I, I, I was looking around. I thought maybe Oriental. Oh, no, that won't work. And And so essentially – yeah, ended up with Iranian. I think if we were going to develop this and, you know, do a published work, that would be something I'd want to fix. I did. I wasn't happy with that. I just couldn't come up with something better. And, I mean, obviously it's yeah. it's not incorrect, but, but it lacks but something. Again, like winter, Persian is something so specific. Yeah. There's no other word for that word. Yeah, I mean, they are really Iranian rugs now, but – you know, no one says that. They always say Persian rugs. It just has the correct feel. So, yeah, that was difficult because, of course, there's a play uh, a play of meanings going on with Don Tarquino uh, being a Persian cat. Uh, and so, yeah, a double, a double problem. It was quite difficult. Weirdly enough, too, firelight and chimneys and hearths and fireplaces and, oh, my God. So... I managed to coal lit glow, I, uh, which, you know, I'm reasonably happy about. Patrimony, again, was a stretch against pedigree, but, you know, what are you going to do? And I was very proud of sophomoric glory. Um, I, I thought that was, a, that was a good effort trying to get into it because, you know, it's the second winter. The page boy. Damn you, page boy. So I looked around, Shannon. I looked at bellhop. I was I was all over the place. Uh, I tried all kinds of concepts, and and I would find things here and there that almost worked. And then I'd find out that whilst they were synonymous, their meaning was more shifted to say air air flights or, um, you know. Uh, so the page boy was a real problem, and I finally landed. I was thinking about boys, and I landed on this concept of garçon. Um, because it's, it's quite a, uh, you know, if you go into a restaurant and you go garçon, one hopes you realize you're being really offensive, um, because you shouldn't be yelling boy at people. Yeah. It has a, it has a certain thing, but I thought, I thought in this context, maybe his name was actually garçon. So, so in a sense, he's boy, the boy. Um, and that was the best I could come up with. So instead of Renaissance tendencies, he now has romantic inclinations. And I was, oh yeah, and then and then finally, once that had kind of uh, resolved itself, it wasn't too hard to fix the rest of that, uh, or, or translate, I should say, the rest of that paragraph. Uh, and it really just, yeah, 
needed some changing intents and, and then I was away. I, I was pretty happy with that. I just think the Iranian lets it down. And I think we were just talking about process there because I think I had a similar process to you of I would use, okay, go to the, the, the ah, thesaurus, what are the synonyms for this word, find a word, I'm like, okay, that could fit, put it in, oh, it doesn't feel right, then I would have to go back to the actual definition of the word to see, okay, yeah, but it doesn't exactly fit what I'm trying to say here and then go through the process again of getting a better word and still trying to get across the meaning. Uh, so my next paragraph, um, we're not even going to talk about the Yermak yet because I don't know how long I spent on this first sentence. Egbert poured himself out some tea. All's good. All's Very good. simple. <laughs> no, I'm telling the original. Oh. So <laughs> poured himself some tea. You know, you, you've explained in action in five words, and I'm like, oh, God, I can't say himself. I can't say some. I can't say T. Again, T, what is T? It's T. There's nothing else for it. So I had to get a bit creative. And that was, you know, T is breaking it down. It's liquid that's been boiled and it has tannins. And then I specified where it was from, from India. So now you kind of have a bit of, like, there's no doubt where, the tea is coming from. Also, again, back in this time, I'm assuming this is English or part of that era. They're getting, they're sourcing their tea from India. So it was also kind of a added historical fact too. So I was happy with the first sentence, which came out as Osgood pours boiling liquid rich with tannins from India into his cup. But I like yeah. what you've done there. I, I, I was, I noted, I noted when we started that that was a disastrous. Uh, paragraph, and I was very glad that you'd got it. <laughs> and the disaster <laughs> continues <laughs> because then the next line is, as silence gave no signs of breaking on Lady Anne's initiative, he braced himself for another Yermak effort. So silence breaking again. Oh, spare me the breakings. You know, if you were, uh, if you then, were translating this, for a modern reader, the Yermak would be a problem, mm -hmm. even if it was a translation into another language. Because it was a problem for me because mm. I had no idea. I thought when you brought up the word Yermak, it was a tool that you chip at the ice with. Um, and again, it's that noun aspect. There's no other word for this. Yeah, it was. I mean, it's a very specific thing. It was a ship, the Yermak. And at the time, it was, I believe, in the papers a bit because it was creating trade routes by breaking up the ice. Um, but for mm. a reader, 100 And it was a very cool history lesson. It, it's beautiful, isn't it? And obviously reading the original, you just have to go to your Google or other and find out. But in a translation, I think that would be more complex. I think I would, if I was translating this into another language, I'm not sure that I would retain Yermak. I think I would change it anyway into something that was more immediately available to the reader because, of course, you don't want them rushing off to a dictionary because yeah. that breaks the reading experience. I did have that thought of doing this until I figured out a different way of getting rid of it altogether. But I didn't want to because I made an effort of making the first paragraph that I did relate to this paragraph. 
but maybe if you're right for a different audience, you would get rid of it. Just like the the glasses, no one really knows what that is that he uses oh, the to spy on yeah. face. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the way you did it is brilliant, though. Actually, I, I really like it. It's it's Thank it's you. a similar sort of concept. You're breaking it down in, into constituent parts, like you did with the tea. Um, but mm. for a modern reader, the Russia's first custom-built polar ship, you know. I mean, you actually know what you're talking about there as opposed to Yermak where you're like, mm, I don't know what Yermak is. So, so as a translation for a modern readership, and that is part of what you do when you translate a course is you consider the context of the likely readership. Uh, I, think, uh, I think it's brilliant. And uh, Frizzils, glacial Frizzils, I, that's a word I've never encountered before, so I was very excited uh, and, and, you know, alarmed yeah. reading it out. But, yes. What is a frazil? Frazils. Um, so I went on Trusty Google and I was like, okay, give me all the synonyms for ice. <laughs> and I found a website and there's over 100 different words for all the different types of ice. Oh, wow. And it was about finding one that because there's floats and a bunch of different ones, like one – good enough to fit what he's talking about. So not a huge berg, but, you know, it's a frazil is when it's starting to um, get quite thick and almost to the point that it's becoming solid. Isn't that, I mean, like, so how deep, I mean, so you know about the frazils. I mean, you just threw berg out like it was nothing. It's not a berg, obviously. It's a, it's a frazil. Um, yeah. Um, I just thought I'd note that because this is this is what we're going to be talking about at the end of this, how deep you have to go into the creative process to accommodate this lipogrammatic translation. That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. And then it just seemed like an odd place to end the story. So we added one more line, which is the beginning of the next paragraph, um, which was... And how did you go with this line? Well, it was Lady Anne maintained her defensive barrier of silence. Now, you will notice that besides lady and of, every word in that sentence has ease in it. And that was a bit of a problem. And so so defensive barrier was the initial issue. Now, I, I, wall was, a, was an obvious. Uh, I thought about fortifications and so forth. But what became the issue was that there needed to be a word like behind like one one needs to be or inside inevitably her relationship to the wall or whatever the barrier is is important and all those words in english all the words i could find had ease in them and i was like oh my god but i did i did land on a baft which is behind in a nautical sense sort of towards the rear of a ship or behind the mast, abaft the mast, that sort of thing. So I was like, okay, well, I've got a baft. That's great. But because it's a nautical thing, it, it doesn't make sense with walls. But I was, it did occur to me that you, had to, you have all this uh, ship imagery with Yermak. So I thought, okay, I can lean into the nautical thing, but it needs to be abaft something. And then I came up with a lofty boom. So, you know, when you lower the boom on people, 
It's like when you're you're about to so you lower the boom, you're being all silent, and then bam, you hit them because that's what he thinks is going to happen. So she's abaft a lofty boom. I was I was so thrilled by that. I thought, yeah, I've nailed it. Um, but I did still have the issue of it being defensive, and so in the end, I was thinking about passive aggressiveness, which I think is what he is feeling is occurring at this time. I'm not sure that passive-aggressive was a term used commonly a century ago. I don't feel that it was. So I thought it was necessary to hint at it, and of course I couldn't use aggressive. Uh, And so we got antagonistic passivity. Uh, And I think for me that was my brightest shining moment in the whole translation. I'm very proud of how the story ends. I think Lady Anne abaft a lofty boom of almost antagonistic passivity, said nothing. Very pleased with that. Um, yeah, and, and what an experience, right? I don't know, folks, if you've tried this at home. It's certainly an adventure. How would you describe the experience, though, Shannon? In broad terms, if, if someone said, hey, I'm going to do a lipogram, is that something I should do? You know, you're, you're at a pub, you're just having a few beers, and they just crack that out, as people do at pubs. What uh, what would your response be? I think they should do it because I was thinking on this and you've brought up often the difference between reading and then doing a long reading, a deep reading, which is something translators have to do. And if we go back to the piece that we read uh, as device, Writing is a habit and how we write and how we speak is a habit. And then breaking, this allows you to break that habit because you have to go beyond what is natural or unconscious for you and to you. And it was challenging because I had to think deeply on each word, on each sentence, how it, the continuity of how it related to the next section, the next section beyond that. And for that reason, I would highly encourage and recommend anyone to do it if they're feeling stuck in their writing or if they feel like they're just producing the same thing over and over again because it did require a large chunk of effort to make that conscious change to something completely different. Yeah, didn't it? And I think I think you make a really good point. When you start doing a lipogram, you think, right, I'm taking E's out, so every word that has an E in it, I'll change it into another word and we'll be done because it doesn't work that way. Uh, because meaning starts to shift. Mm. It's like floating ice. It's like one of those bergs or the frizzles. They're, they're moving around. And and you have to, you're thinking on the level of the word, sometimes even on the level of the syllable, and you're dealing with its position within the entirety of the text. This is why I think actually the reticence of Lady Anne is a good one to do because it's a complete short story that is only, I don't even think it makes it to a 1,000 words. It's quite short. So it's very manageable, at least in terms of its scope. Um, but you do, you you sort of go in, I think it's like the way people think, oh, I'm going to do a kid's book. It's like, you know, 200 words, I'll be done in a week. But then it, it gets bigger and, and things start to reflect on each other and lenses and there's all these reflections. And before you know it, they're in their 10th year of doing their kid's book. And I think this is like that, but it gives you, I mean, I've taught the reticence of Lady Anne in other contexts. I suppose it would be dozens and dozens of times at least. And I could probably 
re, uh, I could probably recite huge chunks of it from memory. Uh, but you know, when you do that, you're not really, to a large extent, you're not really in the text. It's like a, it's like a song that you remember in another language. You just, you make it, you make it appear phonetically, but, um, it's, it's not alive to you. This really brought the, the story alive to me again. And I felt I had an understanding of the, the, uh, creative process that Saki may have gone through, uh, that I've never had before. Uh, and this is by definition, you, you could call it a long reading or a deep reading. I, I reckon the best thing to call it is a slow reading because it slows you down. You have to go so deliberately and piece by piece and things expand out and they contract in like ice. And it's all very illuminating, I think. Uh, and, it, you know, to get a real real profound sense of the original text as well as the text you're creating in a, in a lipogrammatic uh, translation, I think you would find, I think most people who are interested in writing will find that they understand the Saki of Lady Anne probably better than almost any writer they've ever read once they've done this. Only the Saki of Lady Anne, but nevertheless. And, and, and in their difference from themselves, um, because this process really makes you aware of how unnatural it is to you. Uh, and you become deeply estranged as a writer or when you're, when you're doing this sort of thing. And any ice that is kind of clogging up your creative space, it's being yermacked to, to Buckley's. There's nothing left of it by the end. It's, I, I think it's a very... It's, I appreciate you. For using all this ice analogy, I, I'm Thank really you going for, for it. My struggle. I'm going to do a terrible uh, segue now. It's like one of those deep cleansers. They they say you should do it at the chemist. Uh, you know, you're you're a new person by the time you get through this process. Completely <laughs> estranged. Um, and yeah, I think it's it's an absolutely fantastic exercise for writers to do. Uh, for emerging writers, particularly, but for any writer. So that's what we've done. We're going to put it up maybe on our website. Is that where it's going? Website and there'll be a link within our YouTube channel to get there. And that will be our version with the original still there, crossed out, but visible. So you can sort of see how the changes, how we made our choices. Um, but yeah, I, I would be so excited if, if anyone wants to give this a go send them to us and we will we will talk about them on a, on a future podcast we'll maybe read them out if 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 people don't mind us doing that and yeah just talk about how these creative choices were made because it's it's so interesting and it's really getting deep into what happens when you write things so yeah I was almost going to unconsciously make the remark and go into on next week podcast we're going to be talking about but no 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 in two weeks' time, in a fortnight, on our new schedule, we are actually going to be talking about, we're doing another book review, which I'm excited about, uh, Under the Skin by Michael Faber. Great book. Michael Faber, amazing writer. And, yeah, it's a, it's a dark book. I suppose it's, uh, 
science fiction nominally, but but really very lightly science fiction. Very lightly, yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of a uh, moody, atmospheric, quite thrilling uh, journey into the dark streets of the imagination. So you know, under the skin, it will get under your skin, and you, you should definitely read it before we give our spoilery review of it. Yeah, so you have two weeks from the release of this podcast, definite two weeks, and we'll see you all then. Well, I was going to do it again next week. And we'll see you all then on the Flavor of the Text. See you, everyone. <laughs> see you, folks.